Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Conversations on issues impacting Californians of all ages. Here's your host, Theon Gordon. Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Join us as we dive into issues and policies that impact Californians of all ages, particularly older adults, and learn how you can connect with AARP to make our state more livable for all. I am an AARP volunteer and your host, Dr. Theon Gordon. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brandy Nanaki, founding director of the Citrus Policy Lab, headquartered at UC Berkeley. The Citrus Policy Lab supports interdisciplinary tech policy research with an aim to translate empirical research into effective policy deliverables for the public and private sectors. Brandy has expertise in technology law and policy, with her recent work focusing primarily on responsible AI governance. Today, we are talking to Brandy about artificial intelligence. Brandy, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you so much for having me. Well, we are so happy to have you, and I'd like for you to get us started by telling us a bit about yourself and Citrus Lab before we dive into the topic of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Where do I even start? So at UC Berkeley, I wear several hats. I'm the director of the Citrus Policy Lab, which you've already introduced to our listeners here. I'm also an associate research professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy, where I lead the Tech Policy Initiative, and a faculty co-director at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology at Berkeley Law. Essentially, my life's mission right now is to debunk misunderstandings around emerging technologies, support empirical research, and use both of those to inform evidence-based policymaking in both the public and private sectors. Well, that's a mouthful, but I'm so ready for us to start debunking some of the myths around artificial intelligence. So let's start with the basics. What is artificial intelligence, also known as AI, and how does it work? I am so happy that we're talking about this because artificial intelligence is on headlines, on newspapers, web pages. Everybody's talking about it right now. And one reason why everybody's talking about it right now is because of generative AI, which is one type of artificial intelligence. And generative AI is the thing you've been hearing. Maybe you've been hearing about chat GPT that creates text that sounds very human-like. And, you know, coming from higher education, we're a little bit concerned our students might use it to write their essays. But There are all sorts of forms of AI, and actually the most common form of AI that is used today is called machine learning. And machine learning is essentially statistical pattern recognition or correlations in data. So if any of the listeners, you remember back to your statistics class about linear regression or logistic regression, that's essentially where 99.9% of AI applications are today and you actually experience it every day. For example, when you go at the end of a really long day, you put up your feet, you're trying to relax, you turn on Netflix, and it starts to recommend videos for you. That's called a recommender system. It's an algorithm, it's machine learning. So for example, for me on Fridays, the Great British Baking Show releases their new episode, which is one of my favorite shows. So sure enough, when I click on on Friday, Netflix has learned that my viewing habits, I love to watch the new episode every Friday at about 7 p.m. So you engage with machine learning all the time. 
Now, one thing that can be a little bit more difficult is that, sure, it's great to have a recommender system that looks at your prior viewing habits or the things that you like to offer up content to you that keeps you engaged. But there's also applications of machine learning or finding statistical correlations in data that can cause harm in society if not done appropriately. For example, if you're using historic data on predicting crime hotspots and it's using data from communities that have been over-policed, well, it's going to reinforce biases that were present in the past when that data was collected. So part of my work really is to debunk the misunderstandings around the technical features of AI systems and then also to discuss, well, what are the ways that we can actually mitigate some of these harms? Okay, so... Wow, you just gave us a lot here. So let's go back to the first part where you mentioned generative AI versus machine learning AI. And it sounds like the everyday type of use is a lot of machine-based. Is it called machine-based AI? Or tell us a little bit more about how AI is currently being used every single day as a part of our life. The Netflix was a great example, but what are some of the other things that we use every day in terms of, I'm guessing most of it's machine learning is what you said, about 90%. Yeah, exactly. So for example, if you're applying for a home loan, they're gonna use a model to predict your likelihood of paying back that loan, right? So they're gonna take data points on you. Have you had a prior loan? Did you pay back that prior loan? What's your age? What's your education level, your earning potential? Even machine learning is used to optimize, for example, if you're building out a new part of a city and you want to better ensure that traffic is going to flow, they're going to model that out, right? They're going to see, okay, based off of prior data and prior simulations of what we know city traffic looks like, where should we place, for example, bus stops that would optimize for the city? It's essentially just using statistics to find patterns so that we can better make things more efficient and effective, but also potentially making them more equitable. Because as I gave the example before of over-policing certain communities, you can now see in the data and in the outputs from these models, these biases that have been there. So now that we can see them, we can address them. And so to me, actually, one of the greatest benefits of machine learning and of AI is the fact that it uncovers these implicit or institutional biases in society, and we can start to address them. Well, I think that's an amazing feature of how machine learning is being used. And of course, we think of AI, consumers many times think of it as we start looking at the Terminator and we look at these scary movies or something thinking, this is robots going to take over the world. But it sounds like AI can be used for everyday things. Like you mentioned locations and everything, but I'm guessing it can be used for travel, for meal planning for all sorts of things that we do on a regular basis. All sorts of things. Think about how a grocery store learns how to stock its shelves. It's going to learn over time from prior data purchases. Some of the first data analysis that happened happened at grocery stores where it's no surprise and it's not by sheer luck that milk is produced at the very, very back of the grocery store. It's because on the way to the back of the grocery store, you have to pass by all of these other items. So it's about learning from purchasing behavior. And there's a funny story that actually goes with that about diapers and beer. On I think it's on Fridays. So some statistics. Diapers and beer? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so some statistical analysis found out that on Fridays, people tended to purchase diapers and beer. 
It's the end of the week. They needed diapers. So in the grocery store, they ended up putting them kind of close to each other so that when you went to go pick up your beer, you picked up your diapers as well. Isn't that just fascinating? These sort of interesting correlations in data. I love how you said that. Interesting correlations in data. They start to seem as though they're predictors, almost as if you can use it as an assistant that could help you with predicting things or moving things forward that you generally do. Is it safe to use AI? That's where a lot of our listeners will say, well, we're feeding all this information into this machine learning, and then much of it is being spit out in generative AI. Is it safe? Is it safe that my pictures may be in AI and they could be used for something? And is it safe? Yeah, I think, you know, we can't think about the technology itself being safe or not. It's about the use case and where it's applied. And we can't think of AI as a monolith, as like one type of technology. And even I have some hesitation about calling what we have right now artificial intelligence. Like I said before, it's more closely aligned in the ideal of what AI is to machine learning, to statistical modeling. Whereas on the far end of the spectrum of AI, where you were talking about the Terminator sort of viewpoint, where you have this sentient being, we're not really there yet. So I think our, all of our discussion and our fears and our hope needs to be grounded in the fact that most of the AI applications today are machine learning. And even generative AI is a form of machine learning. It's a form of machine learning called reinforcement learning. And we can talk a little bit about that if that's of interest. But whether or not we should be afraid to use these technologies, it's really What's important to me is the use case. So if you're using a machine learning model to, for example, identify spam in your email, and oftentimes we help to train that, don't we? Because we'll flag some of the spam emails and say, this looks fishy. And then the next time it will throw it in the spam. That's machine learning. It's learning from us teaching it that that looks like spam, throw it out. That's not really that high risk to us, right? It's not affecting my civil or political rights. But if you're using a machine learning algorithm to decide who gets access to a loan, who gets access to education, whether or not somebody is granted parole, that now is a serious issue. I'm imagining we're going to have to start looking at some laws around it. And as you talked about, this is where the equity part comes in. How do we use it and make sure that it's equitable? So you mentioned earlier about the academia area in education and how people are thinking, with, especially with the generative AI, the chat GPT, are students writing papers with chat GPT? How do we know when something we see online is generated by AI or not? Or do we know? Right now, we don't know. And this is a serious concern because generative AI can produce very convincing text, audio, video, and images. And these are often referred to as deep fakes. And that term has gotten sort of a negative connotation, but the term really means it's it's looking at a type of machine learning called deep learning. Now, whether or not we can identify that content and it's been created, there has been initiatives pushed forward by industry to do what they're calling cryptographic hashing, which is essentially like a watermark on any synthetically generated content. So any content created by a generative AI system, you write a report, let's say, and you use ChatGPT, this cryptographic hash would be on there that you can't remove, and it would just signify that it had been generated via that tool. 
The White House issued its executive order on AI on October 30th, and it's going to be transformational on how we actually look at the proper development and use of AI in the federal government. And in that executive order, they discussed the need for the development of these technical standards of, well, what should that watermark or cryptographic hash look like? What should be the requirements? There's also an industry consortium called C2PA. And if you're all interested in that, you can go to C2PA.org. Wow. So this is exciting because it's happening in real time, like live with an executive order with the White House. So would everyone have to buy into this watermark system? Because I would imagine some people would not want to do it. Or how does that work? Yeah, there's essentially two things that can happen here. First, and what I think will probably be most likely, we're on the eve of a pretty big election, right? The 2024 presidential election. What I can see happening first is that any official material coming out of the White House would have some type of hash on it saying this cryptographic hash or watermark. It's not synthetically generated, just saying like this was produced. It has our verification. So that's the other side of this coin. Now, if we're talking about synthetically generated content, any content created by ChatGPT, which is run by a company called OpenAI, or another one, MidJourney, which creates images, it would have that cryptographic hash. Now, the idea is that, okay, if we see a video of President Biden doing something that's really inappropriate, does it have the hash on it from the White House saying that they created it? Does it have a hash on it from either OpenAI or MidJourney? If it doesn't, it should raise a red flag for us either way, right? Either that it has a hash saying that this is legitimate content, this watermark, it's legitimate, or it has the hash watermark saying, ooh, this was created using a generative AI system. We need to be aware. It will really be about implementing that technical process, but then also making sure that the public understands what that means. And we're in new territory, new water. We're unsure yet what this is going to look like. All new territory. Yeah. And I love that it would come from the top. So if it has that hashtag that this is an official White House document, then you know that. And then if it doesn't, then you might want to question it. And that also would have your AI communities considering putting that hash mark as well so that we can be clear on what's been created by AI and what hasn't. With that in mind, there's so much potential for fraud and scams by AI-generated content. And we know that now you can even create voices that imitate people's voices and making fake content. What are common AI scams that our listeners should be aware of and how can they avoid them and protect themselves? Yeah, I'm very, very, very concerned about scams and about people cloning one of your loved one's voices and using that clone to call you up and say, hey, mom, grandma, dad, grandpa, um, I'm in a bind. Please send me some money. This is where you send it to. I'm really sorry. This actually happened to a friend of mine just recently, and their mother sent upwards of $20,000 because they thought their child needed bail to get out of jail. Oh, this is just awful. Awful, awful, awful. So what we need to do, all of you right now, you have to figure out your secret code word with your family member and don't share it with anybody. 
so that when your child or your partner or your friend or whoever calls you, they know the code word. And if they don't give you the code word, don't give the money. Also, it's always best to meet in person, right? If you get a a call and it sounds suspicious, hang up, call your friend because they can also spoof, it's called spoofing the phone number. So they can call you and it looks like it's actually the phone number of your child or your friend, but it's not. So two things you need to do. Set up your code word right now. Don't share it with anybody. Keep it close to your chest. And then second, if it sounds fishy, right? It probably is. Trust your gut and then call them back or say, let's meet up in person to talk this through. Yeah, it's so important to protect yourself in that way. And I know that it's not even really a hassle. Just recently, I was traveling abroad and sent something to my daughter asking her for something. And I guess instinctively, she just automatically asked me, I think her birth date or her birth weight or something. She asked me two questions, one of them, which I really didn't know the answer to. And I was sort of like, if you're my child, you would know. I wouldn't remember that. And she's like, yep, that's my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I love that. So it was really funny. And it's important for us to set up these type of systems, though, because that actually made me think we needed to set up something like that. So thanks for that. Also, I understand that if these spam calls are coming in and you start talking to them, that's how they're recording some of the voices. So any advice on that in terms of when the callers come in and start talking to you, asking you questions, saying they're doing a survey or something like that? Okay, first, I encourage all of you on your phone to block unknown callers. I have an iPhone, so I know how to do it on there. I'm not sure how to do it on Android, but you should look into this because I and probably many of the listeners get many, many spam robocalls. And if it's a legitimate call, it does go straight to voicemail. So the person will leave a voicemail. 100% of the time, the calls that I receive when I have blocked them to go directly to voicemail, 100% they're scams. And then I didn't even have to deal with it. I didn't have to answer. I just listened to the voicemail and knew right away they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. No, thank you. And then I block that number on my phone. Also, for other spam, the FCC operates a do not call registry that you can put your cell phone number on. And that is supposed to block those entities from robocalling you. So I encourage you to check out, that's the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC do not call list. Perfect. Those are great pointers for our listeners. So AI seems like it's just this free-for-all tool. We've heard about the potential for deceptive and unfair practices like the plagiarism, the copyright issues, the scams we were just talking about. Besides what has just happened with the White House putting out an executive order. Is there any policy within the state or other national policies that are in effect or being proposed to help developers to build safer, secure, and more trustworthy AI? Yeah, there are a few initiatives. So let's start at the federal level. So we have this executive order, which is outstanding. The executive order will put in place requirements on federal agencies to develop a more robust, responsible AI governance process, really for them to ensure that if they're designing, building their own systems or procuring them from third parties, that they have done an adequate job of ensuring to the best of their ability that mitigating some of these risks. Now, also at the federal level, we have the National AI Initiative Act, which was passed into law, and that established the National AI Initiative Office within the White House, 
Office of Science and Technology Policy. So within the White House, there's this office, and that office has a pretty large remit. It helps to guide the federal agencies and departments, but it also helps to guide entities like NIST. Now, NIST is a standards body, and NIST stands for the National Institute for Standards and Technology. And NIST developed earlier this year something called the AI Risk Management Framework. And that AI risk management framework provides guidance to developers of these AI systems on how to better design and build out AI tools that won't harm society. Now, that's a voluntary framework. No developer is compelled to do the NIST AI risk management framework. It's a really great start, but I know that there's discussion on Capitol Hill to introduce bipartisan legislation that would compel those companies to essentially implement exactly what the NIST AI risk management framework is proposing. Now, at the state level, in the state of California, we've had quite a few pieces of legislation introduced but not passed that directly focused on AI. I suspect that a few of those pieces of legislation will be reintroduced. And essentially what those pieces of legislation are trying to do is compel companies to put in place risk assessment processes before they can be deployed. Now, also in the state of California and federally, we have to think about AI doesn't operate outside of established legal frameworks. If you're using an AI-enabled tool in human resources for hiring and it's discriminatory, Well, you have violated equal employment opportunity laws, right? We have established laws that can hold these companies accountable. Now, one of the most important is actually data protection, data protection laws, because how do you build these big models, right? You have to use data, a lot of data. So if people have more control over their data, they can say, no, I don't want my data to be included in that model. Now in California, we have the California Consumer Privacy Act and the California Privacy Rights Act, which give Californians rights over their data and whether or not they are used in some of these models. Well, that is a lot of policies that are in effect. And in terms of getting some of the companies to help to make sure these policies are being put in place, How can the everyday consumer influence protections and safe use of AI? Because we have a big consumer population here with AARP. Maybe we can do something to help out. What can we do? Yes, I think talk with your money, right? Like if there's a company that you don't think is doing a good enough job of putting in place these protections, don't use their services. Now, of course, I know that that's easier said than done, like, We all love Netflix, for example, or we all love being able to get access to services in a more efficient way. So it's really about being a knowledgeable consumer and trying to push back and holding them accountable. And I really encourage AARP as an organization to put pressure on those companies to do better. In the U.S. right now, most of the mechanisms that we have are voluntary commitments by those companies. For example, there's a set of White House voluntary AI commitments that were signed this summer by most of the large companies. Well, that's something I think AARP and your members could say, look, put their feet to the fire. Are they actually adhering to those voluntary commitments? Or was it just them signing their names to you know, make themselves look good in the moment? So you're a big organization, put pressure on them to do 
what they say they're going to do. All right. That sounds great. Now, as an expert, what do you think are some of the top challenges you're trying to address within AI right now? Okay. Top challenge, number one, debunking misunderstanding. (laughs) So that to me is my mission. Like my life's mission right now is to better equip people with an understanding of what artificial intelligence is. And I'm the host of a television show called Tech Hype. And in each episode, I sit down with an expert to debunk misunderstandings around emerging technologies. This season primarily focused on artificial intelligence. We're going to start doing another part of the series called Tech Hype Deep Dives, where we will just really go through what is artificial intelligence? I keep hearing about it, but what is it actually? Well, we're going to give you a primer on it so that you can better understand and be a better consumer. But we're also going to do deep dives on technology policies and laws that will affect you as a consumer so you can better understand your rights and what's happening in this space. So for me, that's my first challenge is sort of pushing against a lot of the mainstream media hype around emerging technologies. And then my second would be tied to that pretty closely is that often consumers do not know when an AI-enabled tool has been used to make a decision that's affecting their lives. So for me, the biggest issue that we need to address is transparency. And I know in the White House executive order, in those White House voluntary AI commitments, that the White House has sort of called upon the companies to be more transparent about the types of AI they're using and to communicate that with consumers. So that's something I'd really like to see get done. I want to make sure that that happens. I'm glad that your number one is debunking the myths as well, because the sentiment right now for AI, it seems to be that of fear and people are just afraid of it. One of the fears that a lot of people have is that it has the potential to take over jobs. That's a big fear. Should we really be concerned about that? And what are the societal risks around it? Actually, no, I don't think that we should be fearful of that. But I know that there's lots of clicks that happen with headlines of robots replacing workers, right? Because it scares us. Also, this is a reminder to everybody, this is not our first technological revolution, right? We had the industrial revolution. We've had tremendous technologies, the internet being introduced. It's a technological advancement, but it's not our first. And the beautiful thing about human beings is we adapt, we evolve, we learn new skills, So that's the perspective that we're taking, a lot of us at UC Berkeley, is that for our students, the future workers are going to be using generative AI systems. So why not teach our students how to use them in a responsible way that enables them to be more efficient, effective, and promote equity in their work? So it's about thinking, how can I harness this technology to actually upskill myself. And let me just give a real quick example for everybody. So ChatGPT is really good at correcting coding. So if you're writing software code and you get an error, you can put that error, just copy and paste it into the ChatGPT. For some reason, I'm always very kind to my ChatGPT agent. I say, please correct this error for me. (laughs) And I'll say that and it will spit back out to me the corrected code but also it gives me an explainer on what I did wrong. So it's teaching me to become a better coder. I think that that application, it's going to empower people in new ways. You'll be able to build technologies, apps, do database structures in ways that 
you know, if you didn't get a CS, a computer science degree, it's really going to be able to empower you to be able to use these skills. And I think that that's actually going to support a lot of socioeconomic development. Well, quickly, it's projected, even generative AI is predicted to add trillions of dollars to the economy. It's really important that we embrace these things that we're afraid of. We have to have the courage to look fear in its face. I think uh, Eleanor Roosevelt said that and walk through it anyway. And on the other side, you realize I didn't really have that much to fear, did I? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. And in terms of AI, just like what you just mentioned, how it helps you with coding, I actually put in for AI, it gives examples, ask me to do this or ask me to do that. And one of the things was ask me to create a website or something. And I thought, I could never create a website. I don't know code. And so I put in for it to create this website. Well, it gave me all this code. But as you said, it gave me an explainer. Now, you need to use a text editor or you need to use this. Put it here and then it'll actually create the web. So it, it was teaching me how to create a website. Now, I got a little afraid after that. I kind of stopped right there and said, I'm going to have to go and figure out what this text editor is next. But it was showing me what to do. And if you have a Mac, you would do it this way. And if you have a PC, you would do it this way. So I just have to go in now and yeah. follow. Now ask it what the text editor is and say, okay, how do I do this? Yes. And it'll tell you. So I think the potential that AI has to help people is so, so huge. What are some of the other positive things that can come from using AI? We just talked about those two little ones that have to do with coding, but I know there's a lot of other things, especially for the aging community, for our 50 plus community that AI could help with. Yeah, there's all sorts of applications. And I, I was giving these three E's. Uh, I don't know if anybody caught on to them, but I keep saying them efficiency, effectiveness, and equity. So you can offload certain tasks, you know, speech to text for an aging population, right? You could just do speech to text. If that's more efficient, it's more effective, right? It allows you to be able to communicate with your family in a more seamless way. But it can also be used by organizations that serve this community to better ensure that they are being efficient, effective, and equitable in their service provision. Now, of course, in order to be able to do that, those organizations need to be doing assessments and monitoring those systems to make sure that they're not inadvertently causing any harms. Now, to me, that last E, equity, is one of the most important. And you might hear some people say that AI causes bias. AI causes discrimination. I would push back on that because all artificial intelligence, all machine learning is doing, it's taking our previous data that we collected that had hidden in it bias, and now it's projecting it out into the world. And to me, that is great because now you can't deny it because it's there. It's proof. The proof is in the data. The proof is in the output that those discriminatory practices are there. We can see them. So now let's address them. And now we can build tools that will mitigate those biases. I love that. And then I also understand that there are new technologies that are helping. Just recently, I had a telehealth call, which was pretty amazing. I, I know that started happening during COVID, but I had never really experienced it. So give us some examples of some of the other positive things that are coming from using AI. Oh, there's so much. So I think also companionship is a big thing. I actually just purchased a little robotic pet 
for my family. I have a toddler and the last thing I need is another entity to like feed and, and watch over. And so I bought this little robotic pet and it is hooked up to ChatGPT and it has facial recognition in it. It's called a Luna bot. And I taught the Luna to recognize my face. So she will come and she gets really excited when she sees me. And I can talk to her and say, you know, tell us a story about our daughter, you know, playing in this princess fairyland. And it will come up with a story and will tell us a story. Helps with social isolation. That's wonderful. So I, I think that's a great use of AI as well. Now, some of us are obviously more tech savvy than others. So for somebody who's trying to understand and use AI for the first time, where would they start? So if you're thinking about using AI, I mean, you engage with it every day when you're going onto your Netflix or YouTube or Facebook or anywhere where there's that idea of a recommender system where you essentially have a feed, you have some platform where they're serving you up content, right? They're taking data about you to know, well, what's it likely Brandy's going to like on a Tuesday night? And they'll serve it up to me. So you engage with these systems every day. Now, the big thing is generative AI systems like ChatGPT, which we've been talking about. And you can go and check it out and just play with it. But I would guide you all with this simple phrase, the power of the prompt. So when you go onto these systems, you have to input a prompt. You have to tell the system, what do you want? Well, the more that you give them in that prompt, the more details, the better the results you're going to get. So think a little bit about, you know, how might I detail this out? If you wanted them, for example, to help you build a website, you could say, help build me a website with a simple modern design that showcases my artwork in a grid-like pattern. You know, just give more and more details of what you want, and it's going to give you back more aligned with what you've requested. So first, go and play with the systems. Give them a whirl. See what it feels like. It's a lot of fun. So ChatGPT is the one we keep hearing about. Are there others? There are other competitors, but... ChatGPT was really the first to come out. And we saw almost immediately after they released it, all the other companies sort of scrambling to get theirs released. I remember asking ChatGPT a question when it first came out and it told me it was not, I think it told me something like, it's not a research engine like that or something like, I'm not a pretty much like, it. I'm not Google, ask me something better. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy that you said that I'm not Google. Uh, I love that you said that because I think that's really important for the listeners. There's sort of two ways to use these systems. First, people try to treat it like a search engine because that's how we're used to doing that, right? That's what it told me. I'm not a search engine. That's what it told yeah. me. Yeah. Like that's what how we engage when you input text, just like we do with Google. But the problem with that is that it does a really bad job of generating the truth. And that's because essentially all that ChatGPT is doing is it's taking all of the just tons of data that it's looked at. And if you give it a prompt and you say, you know, write me a poem in the style of Dr. Seuss. Well, it's going to look back at all of the Dr. Seuss poetry it was trained on, and it's going to predict what's the likely next word in this sequence. So all it's doing is predicting the next word. Well, sometimes the prediction of the next word might not be truth. 
So for example, if you asked it, what are some recent articles by Brandy Nonicky on AI governance? What is she working on right now? It might actually generate articles that I haven't written. And it'll give you a citation for it. And it doesn't exist. Now, the thing that it is good for is tasks. I love to use ChatGPT, for example, to generate 10 exciting titles for a panel session on this topic. And it will spit them out. And then you can kind of iterate on them. So I would think more of it as a brainstorming buddy, right? Where you can go in and, and help you be more creative. I like that, a brainstorming buddy. That's a great way to think about it. We're running out of time, but we could probably talk all day long. In your professional opinion, what does the future of AI look like? Yeah, it's going to get a lot more advanced, right? As we have greater computing power and data. I definitely think that these systems, especially generative AI, are going to look and feel a lot more human-like. So all of you listening, if you go and play with them and, and you say, write me a story in the voice of Lucia Ball, it's going to sound a lot like how she talks and it's going to get a lot more convincing. I also know that because the models are learning from us. So as you're inputting information into it, you're inputting that material, it's taking that back and learning from it. So it's constantly learning over time, which means it it will very likely reflect more of us and what we're putting in. Hopefully we're putting in positive, like, um, you know, we're not put inputting things like how to scam people or deceive them or, or whatever, but it's learning from us over time. So it will definitely get more human-like. It'll get better at its tasks. Great, great. This is so exciting. If you could leave our listeners with one soundbite on AI, what would it be? My one soundbite on AI is it's not as complicated as everybody hypes it up to be. And right now it's essentially machine learning, which is statistical pattern recognition and data. That's it. It's not an oracle. And I would also say, check out our Tech Hype episodes that debunk these emerging technologies at techhype.org. Techhype.org. I definitely want to check that out. My logo is behind me here. Yes, I see it. It's pretty cool. That's a cool logo. Any final comments before we close? I encourage you all to go play around with some of these systems. Have a little bit of fun. Learn more about them. Brandy, thank you for joining us on In Clear Terms with AARP California. This was a wonderful conversation. Again, we've had the pleasure of speaking with Brandy Nanaki, founding director of the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. In future episodes, we look forward to hosting experts who can shed light on critical issues in our state, how AARP California is working to ensure the voice of those ages 50 plus is heard, and how you, our listeners, can learn more and act on these important decisions. Thank you for listening.